<laughs> hey guys. How you doing there? Gina, can you shut that door? Just because there's a game of hide and go seek going on and and uh, yeah. You never know what would happen there. But you know, our study here in Second Timothy is a study that uh, we have begun really going through the book verse by verse by verse. I've shared with you before that I think it's critical for us to understand who Paul was writing to and why he was writing. We call that step one. What did it mean in the original context? What did it mean to the original hearers? I think if we can understand that, then we can make the application really easy. It doesn't mean that you'll be able to just go ahead and obey, but I do think that Every time we have an opportunity to be able to understand what God is really saying, we have a whole lot better chance of listening, responding, and moving forward. I've got a few expectations. I've asked you as you go through this study that you would be reading 2 Timothy. And you can read it on your own speed. (laughs) You can uh, just do it in your own pace. And You know, as I was uh, reflecting, there was one time in my teenage years that I had memorized 2 Timothy 2. We did it up at camp. I think Sharon might have memorized it too. But one of the things we did each summer at camp um, is be able to pick a portion of Scripture, and 2 Timothy was one of those those summers where we had learned it. Uh, I cannot say it right now. And besides, I did learn it in King James. So it's a little bit different than what I am sharing with you today. But we expect you to read the text. I appreciate if you take some notes, uh, whether they be in your Bibles or, or just uh, on a piece of paper, and that you pass some of this stuff on. Uh, what is God teaching you? How can you encourage others with some of the lessons that you're hearing? One of the other questions that I've had, because people have already missed for very, very good reasons, like very, very sick, almost hospitalized, could hardly even make it, and you don't sound so good right now either, but I'm sensing that you're better. But here's what happened. Today, I actually opened up an account. Uh, This is A2024X at podbean.com. And literally, if you go there at that, with that address, you'll see study number one, study number two. You can either download it or you can listen off your computer, either one. But that will be, all of our lessons will be there from now on. Uh, if you have a problem with that, just email me and I'll email you the address. So, This is semicolon, this is a dot, and this is a dot. Okay, it should be all there, but I ran out of space, as you can see. This is an A. See, this is, actually, this is my key verse. You'll see it always. It's Acts 20-24. Only I divided it. It's very tricky. A2024X dot podbean dot com. And you've got it. All right. Thank you. You know, we have studied this book and learned that Paul was in prison. In fact, i got to tell you, the thing that probably has impacted me the most this time around is that there's very little 
about in this letter about Paul. The man deserves better. He's near the end of his life. He literally will die shortly. Um, he's in a prison. He doesn't have much ventilation. The sewage system is right below him. It's gross. And yet he is pouring his life out, sharing with his, well, little buddy, his younger buddy, on how to be faithful and love God with all of his heart. You know, I, I just feel, as I look at my own life and look at what I talk about, it's so much easier to complain. It's so much easier to worry about what I want and to be able to let people know that. Paul was amazing. Uh, he had every excuse in the world to focus on himself. Near the end, when you get there, and I'm sure some of you already read there, but he asked Troas to bring him a coat because it's going to be coming wintertime and he's not even going to be warm enough for that. So he's in a pretty pathetic situation, but he doesn't care. What he's reminding his buddy is to stay strong. Suffering's going to happen, and really, it is worth it. It is worth it. He's an ambassador. He loves this. He shares, you know, that he has an opportunity to tell good news. And I'm sure the prisoners heard the good news, but Paul was convinced that he was God's spokesman wherever he went. Timothy's on the front lines. But the one thing that we mentioned, the only real compliment Paul gives Timothy is that he was a man of faith. He starts giving him exhortation after exhortation after exhortation. We have the feeling that maybe Timothy was waning a little bit, that Timothy was maybe cowering a little bit, that Timothy, after at least five years of ministry in this church, a good church, well, things were getting a little bit hard. Now, I don't think Paul said, hey, Timothy, you know, do you recognize where I'm at? This is hard. What you're doing is not hard, okay? He didn't give him any of that lip. He basically said, you know what? I want to encourage you. I want you to love Jesus as much as I love Jesus at the end of your life. And how cool is that? You know, he begins then a series of exhortations. And um, through the last few weeks, the first one that we focused on was fan into flame your gift. Uh, Timothy, God gave you something very important. Use it. You know, keep it hot. Whatever God has given you, it's not for you. It is for others. Again, I had the privilege of meeting with a couple last night. They're rather new to our community, our church. And um, whenever I go to people's houses and have pie, or in this case, ice cream cake, um, what I do is I, I talk about what the biblical church looks like. And then I share with them, well, ours isn't exactly like this, but it's really close, okay? But I get to describe exactly what we have to offer, what God has designed the early church and the later church and every church. But if we, again, begin to think a little bit more as consumers, all right, we're going to miss out all that God has for each one of us. He then said, not only do I want you to fan into flame your gift, I want you to consider your resource. 
Remember last week, we did spend quite a bit of time on the Holy Spirit, looking at what being led by the Holy Spirit, influenced by the Holy Spirit, being able to walk by means of the Spirit, what all that looks like. And what Paul is really telling Timothy is, hey, you don't understand what that Holy Spirit actually means. You have the ability to have God's power and God's love and God's self-discipline. And in light of all these things, because you have the Holy Spirit, because you have the ability now to be God's hands and feet in the community, I want you to be faithful to God. I don't want you to be ashamed of God's story, that's in verse 8, nor me, God's servant, in prison. I want you to understand that suffering is going to be part of this whole journey that you're on. So be ready to suffer. Be ready to do that. But I want to remind you that being faithful to the end is critical. Again, this is one of the big um, knocks against camp or youth ministry or any of these different things is, hey, Rick or whoever's in charge, you get all these high school kids or junior high kids all jacked about Jesus, you know, then they come home and a week later they don't even, you know, live at all like they're Christians. And that's really true much of the time. But I think what you have to realize is that each one of us have an opportunity to, to understand all the wonderful truths about who God is. Problem is, just like you have read the parable of the sower, is that one of the seeds fall in a place that weeds grow up around it, all right? Or one falls into a place where the ground is so very, very shallow, and, and they both grow, and it looks good, but the one who has very shallow soil, well, the sun comes out, and there's suffering that happens and kind of withers up. There's also a group of people that grow up and they look really good, but they're strangled out by the world. And what happens is no fruit happens. So there is a lot of competition, realistically, uh, to be able to have God and love God with all of your heart. And Paul is just saying this, Timothy, these are things you need to expect. Now we're going to jump in uh, right in verse number 9, so if you turn there with me, I will read it for you. And I'm actually going to read um, 9 through verse 12, okay? And then come back. And this is what Paul writes to Timothy. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because it was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of us, uh, or he, I'm sorry. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immort immortality through the good news. And God chose me to be a preacher an apostle, and a teacher of this good news. That is why I'm suffering here in prison. But I'm not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust, and I'm sure that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until the day 
of his return. Paul starts off right away talking about the gospel, the thing, the good news. Sharon, can you go to the workroom, get a Bible? There's quite a few different Bibles there, and, and we'll, we'll pass one out. You got enough? We're good? Okay. We're good. But Paul talks about the gospel. The gospel is something, again, that has absolutely transformed Paul. And we're going to be looking at the gospel in a few different ways, but he starts off saying God saved us and called us to live a holy or clean life. Now again, for many Christians, we look at, okay, God saved us, that's cool. God, um, you know, um, doesn't, is not going to make me pay for my sin. I don't have to go to hell. And we kind of think through that whole scenario. But with the next line, and called us to live a holy life. You know, there are not a lot of people that are going to raise their hand and say, you know what, I want my reputation to be a person that lives a holy life. Almost every one of us have this idea that a holy roller, a person who lives a holy life is rather dull, nobody wants to hang out with, and it's not very um, attractive. Well, if we could replace holy with clean, or holy with sanctified. It's a whole different story. Any one of you, if you were going to go on a nice date, and you were going to head to a, just a really terrific restaurant, and you couldn't wait to get there, and you've got your reservations, and they give you the perfect table, and it oversees the perfect view, and the river is there, and the sun is shining, and, and it is just an unbelievable time. But as you sit down at the table, all the people's plates that ate there before you are still there. Now you're wondering, you're pretty sure the bus boy is going to pick this up, or the bus girl, or the help, or somebody is going to do this, but nothing happens. So finally your, your waiter comes by and says, hey, uh, what, what, would, what would you like to eat tonight? And uh, you can look and say, hey, you know what, uh, is someone going to clean up these dishes? I mean, there's old food on this, and it's kind of disgusting me. And this is a great view, and it's a great restaurant, but, but these dishes, they're dirty. And he looks at you, straight face, and says, you know what, my manager has a new policy. You know, we're saving on help. We'll just keep using the same dishes over and over again. And, you know, it's, it's really been quite popular with the help that we have. Is, is that okay with you? Now, if you think the person's serious, you know, you may, you know, blow your top off. I don't, I don't know what you're going to do. But the truth is nobody would sit there and say, you know what, I can't wait to eat off this dirty dish. That would be disgusting. And really, that is God's perception of all of us. He's saying that, you know what? You want me to use you, or you want to experience abundant living, but you recognize that, you know what? Your standard and my standard is just really different. I'm holy. I'm pure. And what you don't understand completely is that I have designed you to experience abundant living when you are clean and you are pure, all right? And so really, God is just saying this, hey, I saved you. I absolutely um, took care of the penalty for sin. You are not going to ever spend a moment 
of an iota in hell. But you know what? I've also saved you from the ugliness of the power of sin. You do not have to live a life that is chained to the different sins or the different problems. Now again, last week, we talked just about the two circles. All right, just a, a quick reminder. When you come to faith, all right, you go into two circles. Top one is called position. Bottom one is called walk. You never get out of this one. You're always a son or daughter of God. But you get in and out of this one depending on when you sin. All right? Every time you or I sin, we get out of fellowship. We get out of this lower circle. The Holy Spirit cannot control us. We are dirty. Sin is in our life. We are dirty plates. If you read a little bit later in 2 Timothy, you're going to read about vessels, again, that God desires deeply to be able to use. And so Paul doesn't stop here, all right? He says, hey, I've saved you. You don't go to hell. But I also want you to know, Timothy, that living an abundant life means living this holy life. It means living in this circle. It means when you sin, Jesus died to pay for that sin, but you need to confess it. And as soon as you confess it, you go back into this circle. So Timothy, hey... You have been saved. You are always going to be a son. But what I want you to know, okay, is that God expects you to walk with Him, to be in fellowship with Him, to allow the Holy Spirit to lead you, for you to be a clean vessel so that you might experience life. He's just reminding us that again. And what we each need to do is as we understand what Paul is trying to say, he goes on, he says, hey, you know what, I saved you, and I called you to live this holy life. I expect you to confess that sin. I expect you to experience abundant living. I expect that. But you don't get this because you deserve it. You get it because it's God's plan for you. We're going to be talking a lot about grace tonight. In fact, Paul keeps oozing grace everywhere he's at. He's even talking about grace in prison right now. Okay? But really what he is saying is, hey, I want you to understand that this whole grace thing, this whole salvation thing, even this whole holy living thing, this is all because God chose you and enabled you to be able to live this kind of life. It's not because you are really good people, because you're not. You're really not. In fact, it's not because you're a good pastor, because you're not. It's because God has called you. Now, if you would, turn your Bibles to Titus. It's just one book over, Titus 2, 11 to 13. And in Titus 2, 11 to 13, we'll explain this salvation just a little bit more. But in Titus 2, 11, 13, Paul writes this, For the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us at denying ungodliness and worldly lusts that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are three aspects of salvation 
three parts, three facets of salvation. And actually, this is very rudimentary. It's very important for you to understand. Otherwise, you're going to get confused all the way through the New Testament as you look at these different facets um, of salvation. So the first facet is the past aspect of salvation. Titus 2, 11, 12, and 13. For the grace of God has appeared to all men. All right. That is God's grace. That is when Christ died on the cross. And this is where you are free from the penalty of sin. Okay? Everyone has to die. They have to pay for their sin unless they receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Once that happens, Jesus pays the penalty... You now do not have to go to hell. You now will spend eternity with God rather than eternity separated from God. But then Paul writes this in 2 Timothy, sorry, Titus 2, verse 12. All right. And he's talking about the present aspect or um, facet of salvation, and that is freedom from the power of sin. All freedom here. So in other words, sin still produces death. All right? You'll see that all the way through Scripture. In fact, one thing that's very unique in Galatians chapter 5, we oftentimes look at the fruit of the Spirit, correct? The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, and you can go through there. And in other words, if you walk in this lower circle, if you are in sync with the Spirit, He's going to produce fruit in you, and you are going to reflect who God is to people around you. That's what fruit is, okay? But right before, in Galatians 5, it says, well, you know what, let me share with you what the fruit of the flesh or the fruit of not walking with God. And it's disgusting. It's disunity. It's debauchery. It's, it's um, unfaithfulness. And you can go through that list. Now the truth is this. Is that if every one of us, okay, every one of us, we walk apart from God, we don't listen to God, we allow sin to rule in our lives, we are going to be miserable. We may have... I would say, little, you know, spots in our life where we get high and excited and, and enjoy life. But for the most part, sin brings death. All right? And if we don't get that God desires us to have power over sin authority over sin. It is not our master anymore. We don't have to listen to that, even though there's going to be pulled toward that, that we will live a completely different life. So Paul says this. He says, hey, God saved you, Timothy, okay? He paid the penalty of sin for you. But look at it, and he's called us to live a holy life. You have the authority, you have the power over sin right now. You do not have to be a slave to sin anymore. All right? You don't have to do that. That's all Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. Okay? You don't have to be under the rule of sin. It says you can be holy. You actually can be a clean plate. 
Because God says, I love using clean plates in my restaurant. That's all. If you can remember that. He wants to use you in this church, in your neighborhood, in your family, wherever that is. But he says, honestly, my standard's pretty, uh, well, it's pretty high. And I can't use dirty silverware. I can't use, well, that cup. It's got lipstick on it. It's a nice shade of lipstick. I like that lipstick. But there isn't anyone that's going to drink from that bottle. It's grossing me out. So that's what God says. He says, you have that. And eventually, and you can look, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, uh, the future aspect or facet of salvation is freedom from the presence of sin. That's heaven. So eventually, again, all believers will get this. All believers, no matter what, they have had the penalty of sin taken care of. This is where we live, folks, right here. And really what Paul is just reminding Timothy right here, says, hey, I just want you to know God saved us. God saved us. That is so cool. But I also want you to know that he has called us to live a clean life. You know, there's some other words, and I'm going to write them down for those who are taking notes. And, and these are big, fancy words, but truthfully, if you read doctrinally or, or you go a little bit deeper in the scriptures, these words will also come out to you. Okay? This is called justification. All right? It means that Jesus paid the debt for our sin and we've been justified. And again, you could say, just as if I've never sinned. You are, you are standing before God, completely covered by the blood of Jesus. All right? So you're justified, you're free from the penalty of sin, all those same things. All right? This present journey is called sanctification. Not trying to be too technical, but honestly, you're going to read this through literature all the time. You're going to see this in the scriptures. Uh, but this is called sanctification. Somebody can't read my writing, but it's probably good. <laughs> because I probably am not really spelling this correctly. All right? And the third, third part's called glorification. Okay? When you are glorified. So again, these are the same concepts, and all Paul is saying, he's reminding Timothy of some basics. I am so glad God saved us. I'm so glad God justified us. I'm so glad we don't have to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus did that at the cross. I also want you to know you've been called to have power and authority over sin. You do not have to listen. You do not have to live that life. And this, again, this is a long sermon series. It's a long teaching series. I get it. But you are being sanctified. You are being set apart. You are being cleansed. You are mirroring me. I'm knocking things off in your life that don't reflect me well. Okay? You are beginning to mirror me better to others. 
This is what happens when you walk with God. You bear fruit. You start to reflect Him more. That's why if you, again, you know, I sometimes have an opportunity to talk to junior high and senior high kids. Uh, I had a chance at Nicolay Bible Institute to talk to a bunch of 19-year-olds. And for one week straight, what I tried to share with each one of them is, imagine if you walk with God for 50 years. And I didn't start there. I said, how about if you just walk with God for one year, this next year? I bet you're going to see some things differently. And after the one year, what happens if you walk for five years? Oh, my word. You're going to get to know our Lord even better. And just, hey, what happens if you double that? What happens if you really walk with God for 10 years? And I used the marriage illustration, you know. I mean, I started dating my wife when she was 14. Unbelievable young lady. All right, I was 16. I was much more mature. All right. After seven years, she forced me to marry her. She, no, she begged me to marry her. I'm not really sure of the adjective. Uh, you can get it from her. Threatened. Maybe that was it. Threatened to marry. But, but now we're at 38 years. And we add those 14 ahead. And, and if you would have asked me on our wedding night, do you love Sharon? Absolutely. Could you love Sharon anymore? I don't think I could. Are you kidding me? You know? I don't know what life would be without her. I have no clue. You know, I, I just don't. And I know she's sitting there over there, and I'm getting a bunch of brownie points right now, but, <laughs> but the truth is this, is that you have no idea how wonderful and gracious and big and loving our God is one year after just spending time with Him. It's more. And as you do, and you know what's so cool is to talk to people who have walked with God for 50 years, and they still love Him. And 55 years, and 60 years. And you wonder, and, and the way they talk, and the way they think, and they're becoming more mellow, and of course, if they don't have any hardening of the arteries or any of those other things that happen to some of our dear older friends. But if they have all their facilities and they have that opportunity, there is just something that comes out that's so wonderful, that's so sweet. So here we are. God saved us. I'm reminding you. And you know what's kind of neat? Is that Paul uses an aorist in that. An aorist <clears throat> tense just means this. It is a one-time deal. He saved us. It is something you don't have to go back. This is a done deal. Now this is something that happens every single moment sometimes. And it'll be interesting, and maybe we'll get into that a little bit later, not tonight, but just the whole idea of what the flesh is, what the old sin nature is, how you can have victory over sins, how you can walk this arena here and experience power over sin not to be absolutely you know uh, hogtied by different sins or different problems that happen in your life because there are sometimes that that just strangles us it just you know um demoralizes us in some ways 
But God has graced you. So many of you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. This is who God is. God wants to give gifts. God graces. God is abundantly in love with us. God is infatuated with us. God rescues us. God goes after us. What kind of person does that? What kind of person does that? Nobody we know. It really isn't. It doesn't make sense. But we're starting to get a little bit of His grace. You know, we see all that Jesus did. We see that Jesus broke death's grip. We see that Jesus is showing light on path of life and giving us life everlasting. No wonder this is good news. No wonder Paul kept telling it to everybody. He says, hey, you, you want to know something? You know, there was a point in my life where I was dead. I was dead. But Jesus met me on the road. Hey, by the way, right before he met me on the road, I was out to kill Christians. In fact, I killed Christians. A lot of Christians. I've imprisoned a lot of Christians. I had great authority. I could just kill all these evil people. God graced you can hardly read any of his letters and not hear of God's grace. Paul shouldn't. He should not have been God's spokesman. He shouldn't have been. He, he, I mean, I've even thought of this. Town after town after town, after the Apostle Paul came to faith, I bet everyone in, or somebody in that town had lost a loved one, or he had caused someone to go to prison, maybe even murdered someone. And now he's standing in front of people sharing about God's grace and how he's different and how he's been transformed from the inside. Are you kidding me? Paul couldn't believe that God has given him this privilege. Now again, because I grew up in a church and my dad was a pastor and grew up in that whole environment, um, sometimes, you know, over the years of ministry and over the years of hanging out with people, you'll find that some just are just overwhelmed by God's grace. And sometimes they're the ones who've, you know, been in prison, they're the ones who have killed 97 people, they're the ones who... Yeah, you know, have all these rap sheets, you know, they're in their pictures in every post office in the world, and they finally meet Jesus. You know, it's the Chuck Colson kind of thing, you know, where how could the hatchet man really find Jesus, you know? I don't know how many of you, and I, I think you're all old enough to know who Chuck Colson is and, and understand his testimony, but he, he felt a lot like Paul to me. Like, I got to wait. I, I'm really not sure. I mean, how evil can you be, my friend, and how powerful or whatever, and you're saying you met this man, Jesus, and he's changed everything. You know, when Chuck Colson died, um, that was a hard one, because not only was he transformed, but the influence that he had in government and especially in prisons was unbelievable. God had given him a special mantle in his life. And Paul was the same way. Paul was just so excited, you know. 
He chose, as, as we read in the scripture, chose Paul to be a preacher. Now the word there really means herald, okay? If, if you look at it uh, in verse 11, and God chose me to be a preacher or a herald. Now again, we don't have heralds, but back then, heralds were pretty important. Heralds were the dudes, they didn't dress funny, they were just like the daily news, you know. Or the herald, the daily herald, what a great name for a paper. Wouldn't that be good? It would be, that would be a great name for a paper. Okay, so this guy would come around daily, and he would be a herald, and he'd give news of what was happening or going on. And so Paul says, hey, you know what, that's who I am. I'm the one that goes town to town to town to give the good news of who God is and how he saved us and redeemed us and given us an opportunity and called us to be clean plates so that God could use us. This is so cool. He also said this. He says, I'm an apostle. I'm a sent one. And I'm a teacher of the good news. It's all around the good news because... The good news is, is that I was dead and now I'm alive. Why do we get so jacked about baptisms around here? Okay? Is it because everyone lines up and says, I want to get dunked? No, it isn't. It's because it's an unbelievable illustration of, hey, before I met Jesus, before I met Jesus, I was dead. But I've come up out of the water. I have new life. I am re. I, I, I am a regenerated person. God is changing me from the inside out. It's pretty cool. And so that's what Paul does. He says, God's grace is amazing. And, and this suffering, I can handle that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of um, the prison sentence that I'm here. I, I am listening to God. I am obeying God. And by the way, I just want to remind you again, Timothy, don't you be ashamed either. Don't you be ashamed. All right? You know, and uh, yes, some of the questions, why? And if you look at verse 12, that's why I'm suffering here is because of the good news, because I'm telling people about who God is, but I'm not ashamed of it, for I know the one whom I trust. And I am sure that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until the day of his return. This is an amazing verse. What Paul says is this. He's saying, you know, my circumstances are probably not what I intended. But I want you to know this, is that I know the one, the one who's in charge. The word know here is this, again, intimacy term. He's saying, I know Jesus, and I can trust Jesus. Both of these are in the perfect tense, which just simply means this. This past action is going to carry some unbelievably powerful results. That this is going to continue. So I know Jesus, I can trust Jesus, and He is going to be faithful to me for the rest of my days. So I don't have to be ashamed. I don't have to be worried. I, even when I'm suffering, even when things don't go my way, even when I'm not that excited about God's journey and God's plan for me, I know my God. And you know something? My God is going to take care of me. My God is going to know what's best for me. Well, wait a minute. 
Um, I, I don't think that cancer that, that my wife had is really what's best. Well, I get that. I get it. But I know my God is going to walk with me and even make circumstances that are unruly or unexplainable into something that is good and beautiful, even if we don't see it. But he says, I know Jesus, and I can trust Jesus. And what he is going to do, look at this word. He says, I am going to guard what I've entrusted to him. He's going to guard my faith. He's going to guard my loyalty. And the, and the word guard here is a military term. It's one that the Romans used all the time. And it's basically saying, I am powerful enough to guard this. I'd like you to turn just back a few books to 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 5. And though your faith, I'm sorry, and through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. You see, those folks who walked with God recognize that there is a salvation that's going to come. There is going to be something that they can look forward to. And that's why I like not only just to talk about the past aspect of salvation, which we are justified. I love talking about sanctification, which means that's what God's doing in our lives and keeping us as clean plates. But I also think we have to keep reminding ourselves that even though this suffering, all the things that are inconvenient, even as we serve others, even as we focus on others, that realistically our time will come. You know, the truth is this, is that Paul saw God on the journey. Paul saw God on the journey. Then look at verses 13 and 14. He says this to Timothy, Hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me, a pattern shaped by faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. He says this, Keep on holding to the pattern of wholesome teaching. Now, this wholesome teaching that Paul is talking about actually isn't just this light, fluffy stuff. Really, what Paul is saying is, I've spent a lot of time with you, Timothy. We have talked about truth. You know, one of the favorite terms that my dad used as he taught over and over again, he was saying, what truth is here? Rick, what truth is changing your life? What's the truth that you're able to apply and actually, it's a nice way, actually, to look at things. And, and what Paul really is saying here is that, hey, I spent a lot of time with you, Timothy. We went deep. I had you learn some things that maybe not even everybody learns, but this is good, wholesome teaching. We lived life together. I want you to hold on to that pattern. In fact, I want you to teach just like that. A pattern that reflects your faith and your love in Christ. Keep guarding carefully the precious truth. Hold on to that. Almost in the same vein of fan the faith. I fan the gift that I've given. Fan the fire that's within you. He's also saying this. Guard. Guard carefully the precious truths 
which has been entrusted to you by means of the Holy Spirit's power who is living in you. You know, we went back to those two circles. But what you have to understand, in the Christian life, it's imperative that we stay connected to God, that we spend time with God, that we know God. When we sin, that we deal ruthlessly with it, that we confess that sin. Because this is where, when we're in this lower circles, where God teaches us and God empowers us. And when we serve, we have his energy. And when we have read the scriptures, we have his illumination. All those things are critical of walking with God. And so Paul really is just saying this, Timothy, it's your responsibility to preserve sound teaching. Don't let it get corrupt through distortion or dilution or deletion and addition. Don't let heresies come in. And again, was there a possibility of great heretical teaching? Then yeah. In fact, we said in the first week that the church at Ephesus, although it was the strongest and the most powerful and the most influential, and you can put that in any church around here, okay, what was happening is begin to lose some of the priorities and begin to fade. And so Paul was just reminding Timothy again, hang on to the pattern of good doctrine. We each know, I'm really sure, that God's Word is critical for growth. It's our food. A little bit later in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of God. Be able to study God's Word. Be able to discern what's going on. Be able to understand all those different things. God's Word is critical. God's Word is important. God's Word is not, well, to be taken lightly. And if you want to grow, Timothy, you're going to have to keep the pattern of consistent teaching. That means you need to walk with God before you teach. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we haven't got there yet, but Paul says this to Timothy. Remember, Paul's in prison. Timothy is out there on the front line. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. I gave, you know, God gave us this. He, God breathed it. He, he allowed us to hear the very words of God himself. And he says, it's profitable for proof, for teaching, and for instruction in righteousness. All of God's word is good for us. So Paul never fudged on this. He said this is critical for your ministry. And if it's critical for his ministry, it's critical for us. We cannot be a believer that is used by God the way that God intends to use us if we are not people of the word. We know that faith pleases God and faith only grows as we spend time in the Word, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 17. I know that study sometimes is a discipline, and especially if you grew up in a school um, and you weren't always enjoying all of your classes, and I can say I was there, wasn't, I, I know, Mike, you taught a long time, expected us all to know English. Um, but some of us um, 
weren't that excited about school, okay? And, and study wasn't that important. But you know what? Again, I remember my dad, um, he wanted me to be respectful in class. He wanted me to do my best in class. But when it came to the Bible, there was a different standard. He expected me to know God's Word. Now, it would probably have been helpful for me to know math a little better and English a little better, too. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I get that. But I know for my family, the thing was critical, knowing God's Word. Then, let's jump to verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. I am so dedicated to finish the first chapter of this, this session here. As you know, everyone from the province of Asia has deserted me, even Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show special kindness to Onesiphorus and all of his family, because he visited and encouraged me. He was never ashamed of me because I was in chains. In fact, when he came to Rome, he searched everywhere until he found me. May God show him special kindness on the day of Christ's return. And you know very well how helpful he was in Ephesus. You know, Paul was lonesome. The man that wrote 12 or 13 books of the Bible, the man that walked with God, he started a plethora of churches. He put churches, I mean, he, he discipled men. He, he developed church boards. He just was a dynamo. At the end, at the end, this is what he said, everybody has deserted me. And my guess is, and no one really knows Phygelus uh, and Hermogenes. I mean, they're not mentioned anywhere. But it's almost like, you know, these two guys were really sharp guys. These two guys were, were part of the church. But even they deserted me. The only one that didn't, the only one that didn't, was this guy called Onesiphorus. And apparently, again, you know, you don't have the internet to find out what jail Paul's in. You don't have telephone calls. You don't have magistrates, you know, where you can walk in and say, looking for the Apostle Paul, you know what prison he's in? All we know is he's in prison. And this dude seemed to go from prison to prison, from facility to facility, and finally, finally, he saw Paul. And he visited Paul. And he encouraged Paul. You know, I don't know of how many people are in prison right now, but I know there's a whole lot of people who are lonely and discouraged and bummed. And I don't know, again, you know, how much effort each one of us need to take to go visit and to go encourage. I don't, you know. But I know this, is that there are times in every one of our lives when we feel so alone. In our heads, we know God's there. We get it. But... Sometimes we need some flesh and bones just to come by and say, wow, I know God's with you. I know God's here with us. Can I pray with you? Can I read your scripture? Can I encourage you? Would, would you like a meal? You know, I was talking to one of our ladies in our church, and uh, she rather uh, consistently visits 
um, Norma. Most of you guys know Norma. Uh, well, Norma's eyesight is getting worse and worse. And, I mean, you would never know. She has this unbelievable joyful spirit. And, and yet, um, if you ever went to her house, um, I, I'll just be honest, a little bit of a disaster, okay? I mean, if you guys who can all see pretty well and have energy have trouble cleaning your house, just put yourself in Norma's spot, okay? And the times I'm over there, I'm, I'm putting things out of the way. I'm, I'm thinking, like, Norma's going to, like, fall and die someday. There's so much stuff around here, you know? But this lady, I had her in my office yesterday, and she says, you know what I do? I, I go visit Norma every once in a while, and I just bring her leftovers. And she said at first, you know, uh, I, I don't, don't really do that. And this kind lady says, you know what, Norma, these are leftovers. It's hard for you to cook now. I put them in a bag. All you got to do is put them in the microwave, and, and you, can, you can eat these. And she's so grateful. You know, Norma gives a lot. And, and there's other Normas in our church, and there's other Normas in your neighborhood, and there's other Normas in your families. I get it. I do. But what's really cool is, is that... There are people, as God's Spirit kind of teaches you and encourages you, say, you know, I'm going to go out of my way. It's going to be a little bit harder to do that. It's not so easy to find Paul. But Paul was so grateful, and he even said, I hope God just blesses the socks off this guy. This is so cool. I mean, I got nobody. And he came, and he was grateful. Paul here used a live illustration. The contrast between the faithful and the unfaithful, the strong and the weak, the trustworthy and the unreliable is striking. And Paul just realistically just said, hey, I, I just want you to know my heart is soaring. Didn't say how bad he was feeling or anything, but just said the guy didn't give up to do one thing, encourage, encourage, encourage. You know, it's amazing how much God talks about pumping others' tires. Not in those terms. He talks about whatever word comes out of your mouth, would it be something that would be encouraging? Would it be something that would be helpful? In Ephesians chapter 4. Would it, would it, would it help someone move forward or would it destroy someone? Say, well, Rick, you know, you don't... I, Rick isn't even in this one, I promise. Okay? What's in this one, really, is an opportunity for each one of us to take someone who is a little bit um, chained, not in a place where they want to be, and be able to encourage their hearts. You know, today, one of the things I did not get to and I will tomorrow, Lord willing. But God put on my heart a bunch of people that I'm going to write notes to. And I just need to do that. If I don't write these notes, I feel that God, um, that, that God won't smile. I, I think he's convicted me about some of these things. And I think emails are good. You know, I do it all the time. I think even phone calls are good. 
But there's just something about this written note, you know, this thing called the post office, you know, this thing called a stamp, you know, that seemed to be so weird today, you know, it, it really is. But I get more response from people from written notes than just about anything else I do. Now, I don't know if it's that I don't do enough of the other things. I'm not sure. But I know this, is that life is hard. Am I right? Life is difficult. And there's people that could use a word or some leftovers. You'd be surprised. You know... Um, I'm not sure where you guys are all at in our study, but we're, we're done with chapter 1 right now. And as we begin chapter 2, I would actually like to give this handout, and I'd like you to read it before you come back to class next week. And if you don't read it, it won't matter, still come back, okay? But this is an excerpt from a book called Grace Intervention. It is written by one of my friends, his name is Bill Giovanetti. And it's a quote I've given you, the, or I've shared with you the pages or whatever. But we are going to be talking a lot about God's grace next week. And I think you will prime the pump if you're able to take um, this, this uh, little blurb from his book. And I think it will encourage your heart. So if you would take that. And before we close or let you go, what I'd like to just ask you is this. Out of the stuff we covered today, was there something that hit you? Something maybe you'd like to comment? Something that um, was a God moment? Something that needed clarification? Something that uh, touched your heart? But what, what went on today that uh, encouraged you in these words?